Welcome to Regenerative Medicine today. This is John Murphy. It's my pleasure to welcome our distinguished guest, Dr. Yoganathan. He comes to us from Georgia Tech and Emory University, where he serves as the Wallace H. Coulter Distinguished Faculty Chair in Engineering and the Regents Professor of Biomedical Engineering. Uh, Dr. Yoganathan has distinguished himself in terms of bioengineering and fluid mechanics, uh, particularly as it relates to cardiovascular problems, cardiac implants, tissue engineering, and imaging. Uh, welcome. It's a pleasure to have you here today. Thank you very much. Uh, as I understand your areas of interest and expertise, uh, you certainly focused a lot on, on uh, heart valves, both uh, uh, trying to understand and characterize the uh, performance and nature of native valves as well as looking at alternatives. Can you share with us just a little bit about your interest and activity in that area? Yes. <clears throat> I started in this area when I went to graduate school at Caltech in 1973. It wasn't an area that I was planning to get into, but one of the faculty there kind of brought up this issue of looking, understanding how prosthetic valves fail, and we decided this was an area that had been understudied for many years. Uh, even though valves had been on the market for, uh, prosthetic or artificial heart valves had been on the market for about 15 years since 1960. So my PhD research was really the beginning of trying to apply some fluid mechanic principles to understanding problems related to mechanical prosthesis at that time. Uh, mechanical valves in the 70s probably uh, represented 90% of the marketplace. Their major failure related to blood damage that led to uh, blood clots and thromboembolism that caused stroke in patients. And one of the underlying mechanisms was to understand how fluid mechanics impacted blood flow going through these devices. Uh, that work has continued. Uh, today we have mechanical valves that are much improved compared to their counterparts in the 70s. We also now have bioprostheses valves derived from animal tissue. However, they are not living tissues. They are uh, fixed in glutaldehyde and therefore have a limited lifetime. However, on the positive side, they don't create as much blood damage as the mechanical valves. Uh, further down the road, we anticipate that one day we will be able to tissue engineer heart valves, but I think we're still maybe a couple of decades away from that uh, because we're just beginning to understand the biology <coughs> of native uh, heart valves. Uh, it's an area that has been much understudied, uh, mainly because of the fact that these artificial devices were out there and have saved millions of lives, and therefore there was never a need to study valvular heart disease. But today, with the biological revolution that we have and better biological tools to understand things that go on in our bodies, there is now an effort to begin to understand how valvular heart disease occurs, uh, how it might be controlled medically rather than surgically, and I think we will see, like, similar to where we control uh, atherosclerosis in patients, uh, plaque formation by giving uh, you know, patients uh, cholesterol-reducing drugs, that one day we will be able to 
treat some valvular diseases by medical therapy. It's very interesting, you know, when people think about a heart valve, they, I think, the first initial impression is it's a rather simplistic device or a simplistic component of, of the overall heart. But uh, in my looking at them, they're really very complicated uh, components of the, of the overall heart system. Uh, absolutely. I mean, I think everyone has looked at these as passive flaps that open and close with blood flow going through them. And if you want to look at it simplistically, that is what their function is. But as structures, they're extremely complex. They're thin, membranous structures. But what's made by nature in terms of these structures is incredibly uh, uh, fascinating. Uh, the entire mechanical element of these, these these valves are in probably the harshest mechanical environment in the body. Therefore, they have to withstand tremendous forces. They open and close approximately 70 times a minute in an average person who's resting, which translates into 40 million times a year. And if you then multiply that by average lifespan today in the United States is 75 to 80 years, that's a lot of billions of cycles that you're getting into that these devices. There's no man-made device that we know of or man-made material that could withstand that many opening and closing. In addition to that, as we've begun to look at this, they carry blood vessels. They also carry nerve fibers. So what we call passive is really not truly passive. They do react to uh, the uh, biochemical environment. Uh, they do get some stimuli from the uh, nervous system, and therefore our understanding is really beginning right now on these very complex structures. You've uh, noted that there's been incredible progress made over the uh, last 10 or, or more years, mm -hmm. and uh, uh, as uh, one of the leading scientists in this area, if you were to look forward and uh, we could, uh, if we were having this conversation five years from now, what would you ex predict would be the the highlights of the new technology as it relates to heart valves? I think where I think the initial technologies will come in really to look at if there are medical ways of treating valvular heart disease. Today, even though we replace a valve with a mechanical device, uh, such as a bileaflet mechanical valve, or a, tissue, uh, a bioprosthesis, one of the issues that we need to recognize is the underlying disease that created the native valve to fail is not being treated. So even if we put in a tissue-engineered valve, whenever that happens, the underlying, if you don't treat the underlying disease, there's no guarantee that the tissue-engineered valve is also not going to be impacted by what's going on in the person's body. Uh, therefore, one has to look in the long term of therapeutic ways also of handling the underlying disease. Perhaps an analogy for our listeners is that uh, many people undergo bi cardiac bypass surgery, but if they don't uh, change their way of life, they need cardiac bypass surgery again in a number of years. Exactly. That's a very good example, I think, because, again, there you're correcting a blockage. But if uh, the new blood vessel you put in to bypass the blocked vessel uh, is becomes clogged five years down the road because the underlying disease is not treated or the lifestyle of the person is not treated, does not change their lifestyle, then they, there is no guarantee that the bypassing vessel is not going to fail in a number of years. Right. 
in terms of the, the valves in the heart, uh, of course, there are different valves, and uh, I understand that some are more complicated, both in terms of treatment as well as uh, re-engineering. Is mm -hmm. that correct? That is correct. The, the valves that normally fail in the human body are the ones on the left side. That's where we have the high pressures and uh, the high-pressure system. Uh, it's the aortic valve and the mitral valve. The mitral valve is probably the most complex of all, all four valves. Uh, the other two are on the right side, the pulmonic and the tricuspid. And normally the pulmonic valve, if you have a problem, it's mainly due to a congenital birth defect. It does not normally fail with age. But today, majority of heart disease in the United States is aortic valve disease in the elderly patients, essentially what we call calcified aortic stenosis. And then mitral valve disease due to uh, heart failure problems like, such as cardiomyopathy or ischemic conditions. That's a heart attack that occurs that then impacts the mitral valve's function. The other area relating to valve repair, valve replacement, is that uh, uh, I understand that you have some initiatives in terms of some minimally invasive techniques to, or for valve replacement? Uh, what we're looking at is to look for ways of intervening early on in the valve disease process. Uh, unfortunately, in order to do that, currently one essentially has to open the chest of a patient and put the patient on bypass. And not too many people obviously want to undergo that process if their valves are functioning relatively at a normal level. However, valve disease progresses and that begins to impact the ventricle. And studies have shown that the longer you wait, then the replacement is not as satisfactory. So you want to intervene as early as possible. And in order to do that, we've been looking at a variety of ways of getting involved with the cardiac surgeon and the interventional cardiologist in terms of seeing whether one can do valve repair early on in the disease process. When we talk about valve failure, is, is the predominant failure mechanism leakage, or is there some other...? Uh, in, the, in the case of the aortic valve, it's normally stenosis, which is essentially the valve leaflets become thickened and calcified. They don't open as far as they should, therefore essentially creating an obstruction to blood flow and increasing the pressure in the left ventricle. In terms of the mitral valve, it's mainly leakage. And there again, that means the ventricle has to generate more blood volume to pump out, and that generally leads to en enlargement of the left ventricle. You had mentioned earlier you, the problems with uh, congenital heart disease, and uh, it's my understanding that you've been ahead of a very effective and very proactive program in terms of assisting surgeons to uh, optimize those procedures. Can you share a little bit of that with us, please? Sure. Uh, one of the areas that we've been working in for the last 10 years is an area that I think is really has been fascinating to us. Uh, that is looking at children who are born with a single functional ventricle. Uh, these are called, this is called univentricular heart uh, uh, cardiac physiology. Uh, these children do have two ventricles, but unfortunately only one side can pump. And this is a birth defect that occurs in roughly two in every 1,000 births. Uh, these children have to undergo a number of surgeries over their lifetime. Their quality of life is not the greatest, and their pr therefore their productivity 
as either as children or as, as adults is uh, marginalized. Uh, we've been working with both pediatric cardiologists and pediatric cardiac surgeons to understand some of the issues uh, as to why these surgeries fail and to come up with techniques of predicting better outcomes as well as coming up with uh, tools for assisting the surgeon pre-plan uh, his or her surgery so they could have a longer-term impact on correcting these uh, issues in these children born with a single ventricle. In a, in a sense that our predominantly lay audience uh, can understand, can you give us a couple of examples of how you accomplish that? Uh, yes. We start off with essentially uh, looking at an MRI image of a child who has one of these single ventricles. We reconstruct that in three dimensions. The heart is a three-dimensional structure. And these abnormalities in the formation of the heart, and, especially, and this is mainly a right-sided problem, it's really taking blood back th uh, to the lungs. That part of the connection geometry, the best way of describing it is a weird, they come up with weird geometries. And each child has his or her unique geometry due to uh, developmental issues that we really don't understand why these children are born with these uh, abnormal geometries. So three-dimensional imaging using magnetic resonance imaging has really uh, allowed us to really look at these geometries and characterize them. We take these geometries, we can create templates of them to understand how blood flows through them. And we use either benchtop models or computational models to provide information to the surgeon. In addition to that, we can change these geometries on the computer using modern computer technology, such as you see today that Pixar does for the animation movies, use that same technology to provide the surgeon in looking at a variety of options as to how he or she might redo the, uh, correct the problem. So the surgeon is trying options on a computer. He's not practicing this on an animal model or on a patient. Since each child is individualistic, this is sort of very what we call patient-specific surgical uh, manipulation. And it really is coming to a f future that we think five years down the road, the surgeon will pre-plan his surgery for a child on a computer workstation, make some decisions, and then go in and do the surgery. Uh, today, the surgeon does that but in his or her head. So that's where the computer is. And that's not as easy as being able, as human beings, we have a visual uh, way of looking at things. And if you can look at a variety of options, uh, one has a much better chance of hopefully providing these uh, young children with a much better quality of life. Yeah, we've uh, all appreciated in different forms the advantages of simulation. And mm -hmm. it seems as though you've... Uh, uh, perfected this uh, or refined it certainly yeah. to an advanced art uh, for this particular problem? Uh, I wouldn't say we've perfected it. I think we've still a ways to go, but we are making use of the technology and refining it uh, to the level that uh, we are able to even today attract the surgeons to come down and play on a computer screen. Uh, most surgeons are very busy people, and to get them to come in and spend an hour on a computer screen without really 
for them understanding what the long-term outcome of this is has been challenging, but uh, in working with about a half a dozen pediatric cardiac surgeons today, we really feel that we've now got over that hump. They feel that we are getting to the stage where we can impact their practice, and I think that's the important thing. The important thing is we are allowing the surgeon to make the decision based on tools we are providing them. We're not making a decision for them. We're not taking anything away from them. And the computer isn't telling them either. This is essentially surgical planning. The computer is just a vehicle for doing that. Is there any opportunity or perhaps even any need to do this in real time as, as surgery progresses and, and new issues or needs are discovered? In the particular case that we're looking at, no, because these are pre-planned surgeries because they have to stagger the surgery because these children have other problems. Their lungs aren't fully developed, so they can't do the surgery in its totality in one fell swoop. However, in other areas of cardiac surgery, I think one would be able to uh, get to the stage that hopefully we could do this in relatively real time, say in couple of days where the surgeon uh, can look at things and make decisions. So I understand that the uh, this technique that you say you're working with a number of surgeons, but they're actually from various parts of the country. Who have, it's not just unique to your particular institution. Is that correct? That is correct. Uh, this study that we're doing is truly a multi-center. And again, uh, unlike adult heart disease, and we're in a big city, you'll find three or four centers that do open-heart surgery on adults for coronary bypass or valve surgery. In terms of pediatric cardiac surgery, uh, even certain big cities don't even have hospitals. These are regional centers uh, because it's so specialized and the skill sets needed are very different than in adult cardiac surgery. So currently we are working with the children at uh, Eggleston Hospital, which is part of Emory University and uh, Children's Healthcare of Atlanta. The Children's Hospital of Philadelphia, uh, Boston Children's Hospital. Now, Children's Hospital of Philadelphia and Boston Children's Hospital are probably two out, two of the largest pediatric uh, cardiac centers in the country, or even in the world, and also at the University of North Carolina. Uh, one of the reasons we're doing this is, again, some of the techniques that the surgeons use vary from center to center, and we're trying to get sort of a cross-section of things that are done. And since part of this is collecting actual data from patients, we needed multiple centers to collect a database and begin to understand the problem. Uh, if we only stuck with one institution, the study would take maybe 20 years. Well, now we've been doing these patient-specific studies for the last five years and currently have a database of about 220 uh, MRI images on these patients. Very impressive. Uh, you had mentioned a moment ago about uh, mitral valves, and I understand that uh, you have a very active program in terms of uh, developing repair techniques for mitral valves. Can you give us a little insight into where you are and what's the opportunities in that area? The area of mitral valve repair has been pioneered mainly by European surgeons, uh, one specifically Alain Carpentier from France, who I would say has been the father of mitral valve repair. Uh, it's obviously better to repair a valve than to replace it with a mechanical prosthesis or a bioprosthesis. Um, because again, if you can repair it, then the person has his or her own valve. 
So mitral valve repair has been going on for the last 20 to 30 years. Unfortunately, it does take more time on the part of the surgeon to do it. Definitely requires more skill. And again, unfortunately, a lot of American surgeons shy away from the longer pump time and the complexities. But today we're seeing a reverse trend in that area that patients are demanding that they get repaired. And therefore, there are, again, centers of excellence in mitral valve repair that are taking place, such as in New York, Chicago, Cleveland, uh, to mention a few. Across the country, there are centers that are uh, the Mayo Clinic, for example, 90% of mitral valve patients get repairs there. You go to an average hospital, maybe only 5% or 10%. So there is now, but again, as modern medicine goes on, patients become more knowledgeable. They're going to ask for a valve to be repaired rather than replaced. The area that we're working in is, uh, we started out really to understand sort of the structure function of the mitral valve, just to get a basic understanding from a biomechanics point of view has led us now to look at some of the repair techniques surgeons use and really not to question what they're doing but to provide more understanding to them as to why sometimes these repairs are not as successful as they would like them to be. And that's also becoming a partnership between the, the biomedical engineer and the surgeon and that is turning out to be fruitful. We've come up with some intellectual property in combination with surgeons in order to help them improve their repair techniques. And it is sort of a exciting area for us because as we see that the surgeons now are beginning to value what the engineer can bring to the table, uh, I think is really uh, good for the patient and I think uh, good for all of uh, uh, medical science. Yeah, what you've just described to us is uh, we've seen multiple examples and other guests on this podcast where there's this uh, incredible and very productive marriage between uh, various disciplines, both the various scientific and engineering disciplines as well as the science and engineering with the, the clinical specialties. And uh, it just seems that that's uh, almost essential in terms of making progress in these very complex oh, areas. I, I I believe in that absolutely from my first days in graduate school because even though I didn't have an official co-mentor uh, at Caltech, my, the person I worked with very closely with uh, was an uh, adult cardiologist who ran the valve clinic at uh, uh, University of Southern California, L.A. County Medical Center, which has had one of the largest valve clinics in the 70s in the United States. So to me, as a biomedical engineer, or as any engineer working in the area of biomedicine, if you do not work with the clinician, even, even if you're working in a very basic area, it is easy as to go up a tree and be sitting up there with no idea where everything else is going to head. So our philosophy in my lab is that we partner very closely with the clinician, whether it be a cardiologist or a cardiac surgeon, in really to look at whether it's something that we're doing in the lab, how does it get to the bedside? It may take five years or ten years, but at least that's the trajectory. So you can do basic science, you can do translational research, but you still need to work with the clinician. It's fascinating, and uh, I applaud you and your colleagues for all the progress that you're, you're making in this area. This has been a fascinating discussion, and, uh, of course, uh, one of the key issues is the uh, is moving uh, the research from the from the lab or from the bench to the bedside. Uh, uh, could you share a few comments with us on that, please? 
yes. I think the area of translating bench to bedside is critical. And I think as biomedical engineering as a discipline today is coming out of its infancy, as more departments are created, both at the, to teach undergraduates as well as graduate students, and as it approaches what I call its teenage years in the next uh, decade, the whole area of translational research is critical. Uh, at Georgia Tech Emory, uh, in the Wallace Coulter Department of Biomedical Engineering, we have a translational research program that was pioneered by the Coulter Foundation, which has now gone national. And really, it is to bring engineers and clinicians together. One of the challenging things working with a clinician is to be able to get the clinician to spend time away from his or her patients and work with the graduate students. And, and in order to do that, there has to be some mechanism by which they can get what we call relief time. And this uh, grant program that is now national, I think hopefully we'll begin to address that and really bring clinicians who are really interested in translating and taking things that the engineers or basic scientists develop to uh, the bedside. Even the strategic plan of the NIH today is all on translational research, and I think that's, that's important. Yeah, my personal observation is that there's many, many clinicians who are really clinician scientists and uh, uh, relish the opportunity to do this, but it does relate to this business of uh, the fiscal aspects of that, uh, medicine. That is, that is the unfortunate part of it is our medical, our healthcare system, not our medical, our healthcare system unfortunately forces a lot of these clinicians to generate revenue and not really give them the opportunity to take some of the ideas. Uh, because I work with a number of both cardiologists and cardiac surgeons, both at the adult and pediatric level, and they relish the time they get, whether it's a couple of hours a week or half a day on some occasions to come down to the lab, sit down with the graduate students, or even in an evening sit around a table with a few beers and talk about ideas, and, and that's the kind of thing we really want to do. And I think it's also important for the Young uh, for the students to really learn to have an interaction with them. Uh, we're hoping that as some of the things in the current healthcare system change, that some of these uh, people will get the relief time to do it. But it does take a lot of inertia on their part to get out of the hospital. However, my again, my experience is once they do get out and they uh, see the the benefits, uh, they're anxious to do this if when the system permits them to do so. Definitely. You get some of these guys we work with, and they will somehow the other make time. Uh, normally, it's either early in the morning or at the end of the day, and one of the things I tell my graduate students is, that's the only time. I say I'd rather not get a clinician at 12 in the noon or 1 because he'll come in and 20 minutes later, he or she's going to get paged. I'd rather than come first thing in the morning or at the end of the day or on a weekend, and if they're willing to sacrifice their time, take their time out of their uh, hide, I think we're willing to do the same thing. Very fine. Uh, this has been a very fascinating discussion in terms of both your science and engineering as well as your very strong commitment to clinical translation. And again, I'd like to thank you for joining us on this podcast and uh, wish you uh, best wishes in terms of your continued success in these exciting areas. Thank you very much, and I appreciate the opportunity. Mm-hmm.